You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The Ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and said, What shall we do with the Ark of Yahweh? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart, and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of Yahweh, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, and took two milk cows, and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart, and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to Yahweh, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck seventy men of them, And the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? 
So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is my show. Today is Thursday, September 28th, 2023. And this is episode 724 of this podcast. That was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 6. We will be discussing in this episode the second GOP primary debate, which was held last night at the Reagan Presidential Library, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. We will, we will, we will, we will talk about who is running for the Republican nomination in the 2024 presidential election, rest assured. But first, we're going to talk about 1 Samuel chapter 6. And there are important lessons that God has for us. That's why he put this chapter in the Old Testament. And let's not miss that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Some of our attitudes, some of our understanding of God needs to be corrected. Some of our behaviors and our attitudes need to be rebuked. Some of us need to be instructed because we just don't know. We don't know what we don't know. We haven't read this. We haven't thought about it. And some of us need to be encouraged because we do know this. We need to be reminded that it's the case no, you're not imagining it. It does relate to what we need to make decisions about together and individually and separately. But first, before we get into the individually and separately, let's talk about the text and the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, as it's known, being returned to Israel. So if you'll remember, in the previous chapter, the Philistines put the Ark of God in their temple at Ashdod as a kind of trophy. And they set it beside their statue to their god, Dagon. And this is perhaps a way of symbolically gesturing to themselves and their people that Dagon gave them the victory over the God of Israel. They don't know this God of Israel, but whoever he is, he obviously couldn't save the Israelites. He's not as strong as our God. Well... (laughs) Seven months later, they changed their tune and they got tired of shuffling the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant around because that's what they did. The statue fell down. They came up into the temple the day after they had put the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and they found that the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face and was lying prostrate in front of the Ark, almost like it was worshiping the Ark of God. You guys want to play a symbolic game? God can play a symbolic game. Just watch. Watch this. What did they do? They put the statue back up and left it. And when they came back, it had fallen again. This time it had broken. And the arms had broken off and the head had broken off. And they said, oh no, (laughs) what in the world? What is going on? But then it got worse, right? Things got worse because it wasn't just against their statue that God acted they started to have an issue. The men in particular started to have an issue with tumors. And here in chapter six, there's reference to mice. So there's a plague of mice and there are tumors. And 
what do they do? They move the ark of God from one Philistine city to the next. Hey, I don't want it. You can have it. No, I don't want it. Let's give it to him. They played hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant, which is amusing after a fashion, but it's also very, very serious because these were real men, real people who were enduring real suffering. And why? Because they were treating the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant in a very casual, contemptuous way. This is the whole reason why God allowed the Philistines to defeat Israel is because Israel had been treating God in a flippant, glib way. And so also when the Philistines have the Ark of God and they treat it in a casual, flippant way, God is going to afflict them as well. And so he does. And so they say, after seven months, we can't keep this thing. We need to send it back where it came from. And the lords of the Philistines, of whom there are five, as it turns out, the lords of the Philistines confer and they get advice. They get counsel from their priests and their diviners. So these are the men who are in tuned with the spiritual. These are the religious leaders of the Philistines. The lords of the Philistines call them in and they say, what should we do? What do you advise? Tell us what we should do. What shall we send to its place when we send the ark back where it came from? And the advice that they get, which is interesting, is put a tribute of golden mice and golden tumors in a box and send that with the ark and let two mother cows who've been separated from their calves be yoked. They've never been yoked before, but let them be yoked and put it on a cart and let the cows go where they will. If they go back to where they came from, if they go back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know, right? We'll know that this was God. This was the God of the Israelites who did this to us. And if they just kind of wander around or if they, oh, I don't know, perhaps try to get back home to where their calves have been taken, we'll know that this was just a coincidence. This was not the God of the Israelites. It just happened that these things happened at the same time. And yet what happens? The cows go straight for Beth Shemesh and they end up at a field a field belonging to a man named Joshua. And it says that the lords of the Philistines followed up to the border of Beth Shemesh. As in, they're curious, right? So there's a humorous quality to this. There's a kind of childlike curiosity. There's a primitiveness to this. It's a little crude, but they just want to see what happens, right? <laughs> what's going what's gonna to happen? Is this thing going to actually get where it goes? And then what? And it says that they followed and then they went home after they had watched everything. They watched the people of Beth Shemesh take the ark off of the cart and offer up these cows as a burnt sacrifice. But then, and this is important, this is crucial. Then it says God struck 70 men of Beth Shemesh. God struck 70 of them and they died. And there was a lot of upset, understandably. Now, why did God kill 70 men of the Israelites, 70 men of Beth Shemesh? It says, because, because they looked upon the ark. Now, it says they looked upon the ark. What does that mean? Does that mean that they opened it? Or does that mean that they were gawking at it? 
Does that mean that they were kind of standing around kicking the tires after a fashion? They were in a group, they were in a crowd, and there was something of a herd mentality of these men who thought, well, okay, if they're touching it, if they're kicking the tires, if they're opening it up and kind of checking it out, if they're fascinated, they've never gotten this close to the ark of God before, if they're doing that, well, then it's okay for me to do it. Hey, it's a big crowd. What's one more person? Yeah, surely it's fine. Nothing bad's happening. Nothing bad was happening right up until something bad happened to them. 70 men. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of husbands and fathers, probably. Who were these men? We don't know. We don't have their names. And some might say, wow, that's really harsh. No, no. This goes right back to the original reason that God gave the people of Israel into the hands of their enemies time and again, because they treated in a casual way as a common thing what was holy. More to the point, they treated God as if God was some casual acquaintance. They could multiply other gods to worship alongside Yahweh. They could do whatever, right? They could ignore his commandments. They could ignore his covenant and nothing would happen. They acted like it was totally irrelevant, but it wasn't totally irrelevant because they still, for some reason, were in the habit, right? They recognized that there was some power associated with going through these motions, but it was religiosity without true religion, without a genuine reverence for God. And this is a sobering thought that if we're going to go through the motions and check boxes, and if we're going to have religiosity and we're going to sprinkle in some God talk and think that that somehow appeases God, like that's all God was looking for was somebody to just say his name. Like he's Beyonce, say my name, say my name. No, (laughs) that's actually, interestingly enough, one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Skipping over to Wikipedia. What does Wikipedia have to say about thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Interestingly, this is the second or third, depending on numbering, of God's Ten Commandments to man in Judaism and Christianity. Exodus 20, verse 7 and Deuteronomy 5.11 read, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh thy God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Based on this commandment, Wikipedia says, Second Temple Judaism by the Hellenistic period developed a taboo of pronouncing the name Yahweh at all, resulting in the replacement of the Tetragrammaton by Adonai, literally, my Lord. In the Hebrew Bible itself, the commandment is directed against abuse of the name of God, not against any use. There are numerous examples in the Hebrew Bible and a few in the New Testament where God's name is called upon in oaths to tell the truth or to support the truth of the statement being sworn to. And the books of Daniel and Revelation include instances where an angel sent by God invokes the name of God to support the truth of apocalyptic revelations. God himself is presented as swearing by his own name. As surely as I live, declares Yahweh, to guarantee the certainty of various events foretold through the prophets. What is this, right? What does this mean in vain? In the section titled In Judaism, under Hebrew Bible, we get this fun fact. The word here translated in vain is shav. It means emptiness, vanity, emptiness of speech, lying. While take is nasa, to lift, carry, bear, take, take away. 
The expression to take in vain is also translated less literally as to misuse. And here I'm reminded of a quote my wife shared with me yesterday as she was reading, pre-reading one of the books that our children are going through for school, Abusive Language, Abusive Power by Joseph Pieper, Catholic philosopher, German, she thought, definitely German. Here's the quote. Can a lie be taken as communication? I tend to deny it. A lie is the opposite of communication. It means specifically to withhold the other's share and portion of reality to prevent his participation in reality, end quote. So now rethink the way you've heard people describe taking the name of God in vain. It's actually not per se saying, oh my God, or God damn it. It's not that actually per se, but it has more to do with lying. So it, it could be, right? You say those things, but it's empty. It's casual. It's You don't mean it. You're just being casual in the way you say God's name. You don't actually want God to damn this thing. You're not even thinking of God at all. You're just thinking of your frustration, and now you're in the habit of saying this thing. But there are contexts in which maybe you would pronounce a curse on someone or something, and you would call upon God to curse this thing and to damn this thing, because that's all damning is. Damning is cursing. And that's why some people say, oh, don't curse. But we've lost a lot of understanding of what that actually is. To call down a curse on someone or something is to ask God to do similar sorts of things to what he did in Beth Shemesh, where 70 men die because they looked upon the ark. When it says they looked upon the ark, this must be more than just, oh, we see that it's coming and we recognize that this is the ark of the covenant. This is clearly that they were looking it over. They were inspecting it. They were manhandling it. They were kicking the tires, so to speak. They probably opened it or tried to, or they were about to. Had everybody standing by, if they weren't directly hands-on, if they weren't going to say, let's not do this thing, they were complicit. And that's a sobering thought. The fear of God is very important to God. His name is very important to him. Don't use it in a casual, flippant, glib way. And don't use it in an empty way, in a way that's lying. Don't pair the name of God with lies and insincerity. Can a lie be taken as communication? Joseph Paper says, it's the opposite. And you're withholding the other person's share and portion of reality. You're preventing his participation in reality to lie to him. If you're lying about God, or if you're lying and you're invoking God's name to get people to believe you, shame on you, and you've been warned. God will not hold you guiltless for that. This is a sobering thought because the Ark of the Covenant is actually only important insofar as God's name is attached to it. His holiness is attached to it. His reputation is attached to it. And yet, if we don't have the Ark of the Covenant, what will we say? Will we say, ah, well, this is totally irrelevant. See, no Ark of the Covenant to casually dispense with and kick the tires on, as you say, we're fine. No, 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 no. We still have the name of Yahweh. We still have the word of God. God will not hold us guiltless treating what he has given us in his name in a casual way and then sprinkling in his name to win the confidence and con people, deceive people, manipulate people, 
defraud people. No, no. Speaking of using the name of the Lord in vain and treating his word with casual flippancy, let's talk a little bit about Peter Heck over at Not The Bee and his post from just yesterday, Andy Stanley and the Road to Apostasy, A Christian Response. Here we have in view the write-up, and I'll read for you a selection of it, and then I'll skip on down, and I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode so you can check out the full thing. But here's the intro. The Road to Apostasy begins with a four-word question. They're the same four words that worked so masterfully against Eve in the Garden of Eden and have proven effective on countless humans ever since. Four words that, according to a recent announcement from his sprawling, lucrative speaking facility known as North Point Ministries, have apparently succeeded in bringing down a once highly influential teacher of Christian doctrine named Andy Stanley. Just four words. Did God really say? Satan is cunning and surreptitious enough to know that directly contradicting God's word, launching a frontal assault on his authority, will trip far too many alarms for those like Stanley men who were raised to venerate and honor the Bible. So rather than deny it, he merely calls it into question. Now enter the news that Stanley's North Point Community Church is hosting the Unconditional Conference, quote, for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches, end quote. Stanley will be speaking alongside Justin Lee a professing Christian who is married to another man, Brian Netzel, professing Christian, married to another man, David Gushy, prominent Christian theologian who argues the Orthodox Christian Church and Bible is wrong on the issue of same-sex relationships, Greg and Linda McDonald, parents of an LGBTQ child who promote the heretical Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, the Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. So there you go. Andy Stanley and his church are going all in, all in on affirming and endorsing and arguing for the normalization of homosexuality in their church and in other churches. They're inviting. That's what it means that they would have a conference. They're inviting ministry leaders to come here and listen and be encouraged to treat God's word in a casual way, in a dismissive way. That's what it is. That's what this is. Peter Heck's concluding points include the following, and I quote, this is where Andy Stanley's conference could be so beneficial rather than mimicking the world by reiterating the satanic lie that change is not possible, a lie that Stanley himself has apparently come to believe, having allegedly told it to a group of ministers, North Point could be echoing the words of 1 Corinthians 6.11. This is what some of you were, were, but are no longer because of the redemptive power that comes through the acceptance of Christ's unmerited grace, Ephesians 1-2. Love those LGBTQ identifying people and parents enough to tell them that while they may not always be able to control how or what they feel, they can control what they do with those feelings, 1 Peter 1, 5-8. Love them enough to tell them that we all have a responsibility to resist temptation, Ephesians 6-13, and a God who gives us his resurrection power to do so, 1 Corinthians 10-13. Love them enough to tell them we must all be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2, in order that he may change our affections, not necessarily from same-sex attraction to opposite 
sex attraction, but from sinful affections to Christ-like ones. I would say yes, also, from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction, though, by the way. Love them enough, Peter Heck writes, to tell them we must all walk by the Spirit so as to not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. Christians should not be in the futile business of attempting to turn gay people straight. We must always be about the business of attempting to lead the lost into the arms of their Savior. Why Andy Stanley and his North Point congregation would choose apostasy over such an incredible opportunity is something I simply cannot reconcile with their claim to love Jesus more than this world. End quote. Again, Thou shalt not use the name of Yahweh your God in vain. God will not hold guiltless. That's a sobering thought. It should be a sobering thought, and it should be a warning to Andy Stanley and North Point Ministry Center, or whatever it's called. It should be a warning to those who are professing faith in Christ, and all the while they're living an unrepented, unapologetic, without contrition life of sexual immorality. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's as simple as that. Jesus does say to many who say, Lord, Lord, on the last day, depart from me. I never knew you. That's not something you want to hear. That's not something we should want these people to hear. And so we have to warn them. If they have given up on warning others, if they want to bang the drum of, hath God said, we should warn them if we care about them. Just like they should be warning other people instead of rationalizing these things, spiritualizing these things, treating in a casual way, what God's word actually says. In other news, though, another write-up from Not the Bee by John Knox, published yesterday, tells me that the Washington National Cathedral has replaced traditional stained glass with Black Lives Matter windows, because, of course, four of the stained glass windows previously featured depictions of two Southern Civil War generals, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, A tribute to the South and a symbol of national healing and forgiveness after the Civil War, the window was donated by the Daughters of the Confederacy in the 1950s. It has now been replaced with this. And you can't see if you're just listening, but you can click the link in the description for this podcast episode and check it out yourself. You can see for yourself. But here we have stained glass showing protesters, protesters holding signs and picketing and Is that where we're at? Is that where we're at? That is where we're at. I think it's unfortunate. If the stained glass before had Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and if there were objections, it seems to me as though the better thing to do would have been to replace Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee with Christ and the Apostles, for instance. For example, that would have been better. But... This is where we're at. Again, we can have the trappings of religion. We can think that there is some great power in having the trappings. There's a comfort that some people will have in it being familiar, feeling like there's a continuity with the past. What was powerful about churches and the Bible and the gospel message wasn't that everybody felt so good, first and foremost. It was insofar as we had a relationship with God We were relating to God in reverence and in love and in faithfulness, and he was giving his grace to us. Then, when we felt joyful, we had reason to feel joyful. When we felt convicted, we had reason to feel convicted. You have people now trying to transpose the feelings of reverence to progressive causes, 
trying to transpose conviction because you like to feel conviction. That's one of the religious trappings is we get the sermon and the sermon convicts us of our sin, but now we have new sins. We have new sins to repent of, and if we don't find them in scripture, so what? Pipe down. Heretic, don't be confused. Make no mistake. This will end poorly, just like it ended poorly for the men of Beth Shemesh to, as it says, look upon the ark. What it means is they were treating it in a casual way. If we're treating the word of God in a casual way, if we're treating the Christian faith and the gospel message in a casual way, it will end similarly for us. Be warned. Don't do that. Take it seriously. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And if you say, well, hey, wait a second, Garrett. Racial reconciliation, that's a good thing. Yeah, but that's not what the Black Lives Matter people have promoted. They haven't promoted racial reconciliation. In fact, they've tore open old wounds and they want to hold them open. Critical race theory is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marxist critical theory is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a competing system. It's anti-Christian, actually, at root. Insofar as it's Marxist, Marx loved Satan. He didn't love Jesus. He didn't love Christianity. He loved Satan. You might as well call the Communist Manifesto a love letter from Satan to his followers. Black Lives Matter is not about racial reconciliation. We should be about being peacemakers, absolutely. But for that reason, we should be opposed to those who sow discord among brothers and try to stoke animosity, stoke division for the purpose of getting political power and wealth for themselves. And that's what we're dealing with here with Black Lives Matter. That's the reason why this has been so deadly serious to oppose BLM and the riots in American cities and the violence done to innocent men, women, and children in American cities on this basis. Because this is not about reconciliation for the people who are pushing the critical theory, critical race theory narrative. What this reminds me of is when the French Revolution happened and Notre Dame was converted from being a Roman Catholic church to being a temple to the cult of reason. You say, well, reason's fine, right? Who could be opposed to reason? God loves reason. He tells us to be reasonable and to let our reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. Yes, but... (laughs) Not so fast. There's a big difference between, on the one hand, saying be reasonable because God commanded us to be reasonable and it honors God and it loves other people as God commands us to love other people. That's one thing to say we're going to make reason into a God and have a cult and a false religion devoted to our new goddess, reason. That's quite another thing. To say racial reconciliation, racial justice so-called, is something to aspire to Namely, don't judge with unequal weights and measures. It's as simple as that. To say that much is great, but that's not what these people are saying. The stained glass could have been the scales of justice, and it could have been a reference to where God says that he detests. In fact, he calls them abominable. They are an abomination to him. Unequal weights and measures are alike an abomination to Yahweh our God. They could have made the stained glass say that and leave it at that. But then that runs contrary to social justice, which wants to take away from those who have more just because they have more. That's not equal weights and measures. 
to say that if somebody worked and earned and they made more, they were more profitable in their business dealings, in their work life, they've therefore oppressed somebody who didn't make as much money. So you're going to redistribute the wealth. That's communism. That's Marxism. That's what critical race theory is pushing. And it has been from the beginning. The people who told you otherwise, they either didn't know or they were lying to you. They were depriving you of the opportunity to participate in reality. When I tell you otherwise, I am telling you the truth. I am inviting you to participate in reality. And speaking of reality, Daily Wire News has a piece up this morning because the GOP presidential debate was last night. The second primary debate was last night. DeSantis calls out Trump for calling pro-life policies in Florida a terrible thing without a whole lot of introducing. I'll just play for you the audio from last night's debate, which I watched this morning. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And then I have some thoughts. Abortion was on the ballot in six states in 2022. Republicans lost all of them. Next year, abortion will likely be on the ballot in Arizona. That is a must-win state. Governor DeSantis, how are you going to win over independent pro-choice voters in Arizona? Same way we did in Florida. We won the greatest Republican victory in a governor's race in the history of the state, over 1.5 million votes. We were winning places like Miami-Dade County, Palm Beach, that nobody thought was possible uh, because we were leading with purpose and conviction. I reject this idea that pro-lifers are to blame for midterm defeats. I think there's other reasons for that. Uh, the former president, um, you know, he's missing in action tonight. He's had a lot to say about that. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. I want him to look into the eyes and tell people who've been fighting this fight for a long time. I was at, my wife and I uh, earlier today were at the gravesite of President Mrs. Reagan, and I noticed that um, there was a quote where it says, Every single person has purpose and worth. We're better off when everybody counts. And I think we should stand for what we believe in. I think we should hold the Democrats accountable for their extremism, supporting abortion all the way up until the moment of birth. That is infanticide and that is wrong. Let me ask Governor Christie. Governor Christie, do you think that Republicans... Yes, I will. Okay. Okay. So about this. You may have heard it in the background a little bit. I think it was Tim Scott asking DeSantis if he was going to support a 15-week limit. And this has been floated, and I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I don't like this concession, and it is very frustrating because basically it is to say to the pro-life, the abortion abolitionists, that you know what? It isn't murder or we're going to let it pass. We're going to let people murder their children up until 15 weeks. You know, the law in Florida, SB 300, the Heartbeat Protection Act, makes abortion after six weeks illegal. And that, okay, yeah, good so far. Why not just have a period there? Can we just have a period there? Abortion after six weeks should be illegal. No, no, no. Except in the event of rape, incest, human trafficking, a fatal fetal abnormality diagnosis or when the pregnant woman's life is in danger. So basically, the way this will be gotten around is any woman who wants to get an abortion will just say she was raped or it was incest or it was human trafficking or it was her life being in danger. I mean, you can, you can say you're going to carve out exceptions because you have empathy for 
women in these situations. And I understand that you have empathy for the women in these situations, but that doesn't change the material fact that this is murder. That baby is not guilty of the crime of rape. You want to put somebody to death? You want to be empathic towards the rape victim? Put the rapist to death. You say, in the event of incest, that baby is not guilty of committing incest, but you're going to say, okay, you can go ahead and get an abortion. It's either murder or it isn't murder. To kill this unborn child, is the unborn child guilty? Is that unborn child guilty of having committed some crime? You have to make it make sense. If you're not going to make it make sense, if you're not going to say that this is a person, this is a human being, and they have constitutional rights, they have equal protection of the laws, which should be afforded to them as a human being on our soil, and you're going to extend that federally, nationally, to 15 weeks, up until the moment of birth, that's infanticide. Well, wait a second. Isn't it infanticide ever? If we believe that life begins at conception, going back to something I played for you guys in a recent episode, Ali Beth Stuckey talking with Katie Faust on Stuckey's podcast, there's a lot of financial interest for fertility clinics, for instance, medical research. There's a lot of interest in maintaining their business model by not defining life as beginning at conception. Does life, does the human life begin at conception, yes or no? And at what age range, at what gestational period would you criminally charge somebody who harmed a pregnant woman so that she miscarried and the baby died? At what age, at what gestational period is the cutoff? I honestly don't know the answer, but that would be an interesting thing to look at. But even not knowing that, even just knowing that Florida is championing a six-week ban, except in the case of rape, incest, human trafficking, fetal abnormality, diagnoses when the pregnant woman's life is in danger, except in those cases, I say, why would you put it at six weeks in Florida and not put it at conception? Why not a total ban on abortion across the board? You say, for the life of the mother, what percentage of abortions are for the life of the mother? And when you say rape, incest, human trafficking, aren't you also saying you basically are agreeing with, you're accepting the argument of the pro-choice people. You're basically saying, yes, quality of life, whether you'll be happy about the fact that you're pregnant and this baby is born to you alive and grows up and now is a member of society, that is also going to be classified under the life of the mother. And here we just mean quality of life. And here we just mean happiness. Are you happy about it? If you're not happy about it for these reasons, then we'll say it's okay to murder your child. No, no. Or what would we say? Why stop at six weeks? Why stop at 15 weeks? Why stop at even birth? If you're going to say that this is a human being and the mother will be unhappy to be reminded that she was raped or that this child was the product of incest or that she was trafficked, she was a sex slave. If you're going to say that's a reason to say it's okay to abort the child at six weeks or up to six weeks or at 15 weeks or up to 15 weeks, what about when the child is three or four and this woman has tried to get over it? You know, she didn't get an abortion. She tried to get over it. And you know what? She just can't take it anymore. Every time she looks at this child, she remembers. Where does it stop? It has to be sensible and consistent and simple, actually. I'm very disappointed that the Republicans are insisting on a 15-week 
limit instead of a total abortion ban. I think this should be banned across the board unequivocally, no exceptions. And if you want to say that it's an abortion when a woman has, let's say, an ectopic pregnancy, I don't accept that. I don't accept that that's an abortion. Call it something else. It's not an abortion. Not by the numbers. Just like words can change their meaning over time based on common usage, the common understanding, abortion is not for the life of the mother when you look at the stats, except in the sense of the quality of life of the mother, which is to say, does she want the child? Is she happy to be pregnant and to give birth to a live baby? It really is that simple. So every person's life has value and purpose unless you were born in these circumstances, unless you were conceived of in these awful circumstances. No, no. Try again. But you know what? You know who's worse? As disappointed as I am that these concessions would be agreed to by Ron DeSantis, that they would be called for by Tim Scott, I'm even more disappointed in former President Donald Trump. As you heard DeSantis say, the former president missing in action, he's had a lot to say about that in reference to Florida's Heartbeat Protection Act. He's had a lot to say about that. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say to pro-life protections that they're somehow a terrible thing. I want him to look into the eyes and tell people who've been fighting this fight for a long time. Tell them what? We don't know because he wasn't there. He wasn't on the debate stage. And you know what? As shrewd of a move as it might have been for him to skip the first, he's skipping the second. At a certain point, if he just keeps on skipping the debates, it can look like he is chickening out. And that brings us to our next clip. Alex Snitsberg over at TheBlaze.com has a write-up from last night. Donald Duck, Trump who skipped second GOP presidential primary debate targeted by competitors. I'll play for you here. Cut two. This is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Take a listen. The armed robberies, they're all surging. Progressive prosecutors were elected by their constituents, and they can't be fired by a president. So what would you do to end the revolving door of criminality? Well, look, Dana, the only one on this stage who's done it. For seven years, I ran the fifth largest office in this country um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey, and we set records for the number of prosecutions that we brought that still have not been broken. And the reason was that we went after the crime that was affecting people's lives. And as president, I will appoint an attorney general and instruct that attorney general that you are to put all the resources that are necessary to bring our cities back under control. The fact is they will be stretched. There's no doubt about that, but that's what they take the job for because they love the idea of enforcing the law. We've got to bring law and order back to this country and not just in our cities. But we need law and order back everywhere. We need law and order back in our suburbs. People are threatened there. We need it in our rural areas. People feel threatened there. And we need it in Washington, D.C. also. And Donald Trump should be here to answer for that, but he's not. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight. Not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on this stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. All right. I want to ask Donald And that's a zinger. Yeah, that's good. That was good. I'm not a Chris Christie guy. I'm not a fan. But that was a good one. That was, yeah. Yeah, Donald Duck. Here's the thing. It makes me 
a little bit concerned to be talking about getting control of the cities. The task is a simple one. Your mandate is a simple one. Restrain evil. If you don't know the difference between good and evil, how do you bring prosecutions against those who have committed crimes? For that matter, how do you know which legislation to sign and which to veto and send back to the House and the Senate to rework? How do you know who to appoint to judgeships who's going to interpret the law in a faithful way to reward those who do what is good and to punish those who do what is evil? That's my prerogative as a Christian. That's what I'm looking for as somebody who knows the difference between good and evil and is clear about it. That's what I want to know is do they know the difference between good and evil, not just do they know the difference between out of control and under control. Think also of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 6. You've got five Philistine lords who realize we've got a problem. Our problem is tumors and mice apparently too. We've got to get our cities back under control. What do we do? Well, we should send this ark of God back to Israel where it belongs because it doesn't belong here. It can't stay here. Hot potato, ark of the covenant has to go back. They ask for advice and the advice given to them is make gold figures that resemble tumors like we've been afflicted with and the mice that we've been afflicted with to serve as a reminder. We'll send those with the ark. The ark of God being treated casually by the Philistines, apparently due to ignorance, which did not continue indefinitely when they suffered the consequences. The ark of God being treated in a casual way by the Israelites, which did not continue on indefinitely. They sobered up. They sobered right up when 70 men died for looking on the ark, looking in the ark probably. That is what's more at issue here. A clever turn of phrase, tough talk, looking into the camera, Donald Trump, I know you're watching. Okay, that's entertaining. I'll grant you, that's entertaining. I smiled, but we need more. We need something better than that. Unfortunately, some of the wrong tendencies, the wrong habits are being picked up on and imitated. Why these Republicans think people liked Trump and why they think people will vote for them if they imitate those parts of Trump's persona is coming through in last night's debate in clips like the one I'll play for you next, which is cut three. Here is Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, speaking to Vivek Ramaswamy. Take a listen. There's one person on this. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Hmm. Because I can't believe they hear you've got a TikTok situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. (laughs) That means they can get your contacts. They can get your financial information. They can get your emails. They can get text messages. They can get all of these things. This is very important. Exactly what they're this doing. This is very important for our party, and I'm going to say this. You've gone and you've helped China stop. build, make medicines in China, not America. Me. You're me. now wanting kids to go and get on the social media that's dangerous for all of no. us. You went and you were in business with the Chinese that gave Hunter Biden five million dollars. We can't trust you. We so can't me, trust you. We can't something. have TikTok yeah. in our kids' lives. We need to ban it. Mr. Ramaswamy, you have 15 seconds. I think. Excuse me. You have 15 seconds, Mr. Ramaswamy. Thank you. I think we would be better served as a Republican Party if we're not sitting here hurling personal insults and actually have a legitimate debate about policy. 
Well, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with Ramaswamy there. Nikki Haley saying, every time I hear you, I feel a little dumber. Uh, you, maybe you're trying to channel some of that Trumpiness. And I, 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 that's how people talk, but that's not how we should talk. And if we're talking about policy and we're talking about what's going to be a good example, not just good policies, how do you want the people back home in those cities, in those towns, in the countryside, when they talk about politics, how do you want them to engage one another? It's maybe not a factor in how you're engaging. And similar to the concession of a 15-week limit on abortions, you think this is what people want, and so you're going to give it to them. And this is why people don't like politicians. But again, in Ramaswamy's defense, we should be having a debate about policy. The personal insults, not needed. Not needed. They might be entertaining for a little bit, but they sour very quickly when you realize we have some serious issues that need to be resolved and we need serious people. We've become an unserious people. We need to sober up or else circumstances are going to sober us up. And they should be. They should have already. I mean, I guess it took the Philistines seven months of shuffling the Ark of the Covenant around, but how long will it take us? Now, going back to some of the substance of what Nikki Haley just alleged there, Ramaswamy doing some business in China, a big question is how many of the big donors to the Republican candidates on the stage last night, how many of the big donors have done business in China? Probably a lot of them because China has been a huge market for a long time. A lot of American businessmen did business in China and they got very, very rich moving their manufacturing overseas, cutting deals. It's not just Ramaswamy. If it's going to be a criticism of Ramaswamy, it needs to be a consistent across the board, equal weights and measures type of criticism in fairness. But I will say Ramaswamy and DeSantis both speaking up on behalf of civility last night, that's more of what we need. That's more of what we need. Whether one or the other of them gets the nomination, that's another question. But what I like, what I appreciate that I'm hearing is a sensitivity to the example that's being set and not just what's being said, not just who's going to vote, not just how's the economy going to be doing, not just are people going to like it? Is this what people need? Do they need you to be rude and obnoxious to each other? Is it for a good cause? If it's just to get you a win, but it's kind of lame, it's going to backfire for you. And it's also going to backfire for the people who are watching at home who either tune out completely and now they're less informed as to the issues, their affairs, how their affairs are at stake here. But it's also bad for the people who tune in and who say, okay, this is just how it is. This is just how we talk to each other now. We need to do better. We need to be better. We need God's grace and forgiveness. We need humility and patience and sobriety to do better. But here's what I notice when I go over to allsides.com, the headline roundup for last night's primary debate. Here's what you get from the right, from the New York Post, center right. Everything you need to know about the second Republican debate. Okay, there you go. Pretty straightforward as far as headlines go. From the center, rivals go head to head as Trump woos auto workers, and that's where he was. He was meeting with the unions who are striking 
not debating. And the obvious intended optic is I don't have time to debate with you guys. You guys are small potatoes, small fries. I don't know, small concerns. I'm going to go and actually get stuff done because I'm way up in the polls anyways. I'm going to act like it's inevitable for me to win. And some people will believe that and it might just be the case. What about from the left? Center left, Associated Press. Republicans face growing urgency to stop Trump as they enter the second presidential debate. And you know what? Actually, there's some validity to this. They are concerned. At a certain point last night, one of the questions asked by Dana Perino to everybody was, if all of you stay in the race, Trump is going to get the nomination. Who on the stage do you guys think should be voted off the island? And there was a chuckle from the audience, like this is a game show. This is a reality TV show because that's apparently what it is anymore. Who would you vote off the island? I'd like to hear from all of you. Nobody answered except for Chris Christie. DeSantis spoke up and he took the initiative and it was a good look. It was a good moment. And he said, no, I don't think anybody should drop out. I think Trump should show up. But everybody who's up here has earned the right to be here on this debate stage and to make their case to the American people, which was a good answer. Although I do think some of them should drop out because they have zero chance, zero chance. But Chris Christie said he thinks Trump should drop out. Of course, he's a little bitter towards Trump, if you haven't noticed. Some of the people up there in the debate stage are running for president. Some are running for vice president. Some are running just to get some issues front of mind in the eyes of voters, in the ears of voters. Hey, this is a concern. This is something we should be paying attention to. Some, I think like Chris Christie, are only up there because they want to get Trump. I'm sad to say. I don't think that's a good reason to run for president. But on the other hand, when we're talking about 2016, that was Trump's stated reason was because Hillary was running and she was bad news. She needed to not be the president of the United States. And that was the reason a lot of people voted for Trump in 2016, because he was not Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was bad news. She was and is a bad person who does bad things and says bad, untrue things. Maybe some of these people who are saying, I'm running so that Trump doesn't get it. Maybe that's their path to victory as well. I doubt it. A better approach would be, I genuinely believe this is the best way to promote the general welfare of our country. I genuinely believe what I'm proposing, what I would do as president, would reward those who do what is good and punish those who do what is evil, restrain evil. Start talking in terms of good and evil again, please. Republicans, take a cue from Tucker Carlson, who's pointed out that this is no longer a left versus right debate in this country. This is a right versus wrong. This is a good versus evil debate because it is. Back to the Daily Wire though. A report from this morning, DeSantis challenges Trump to one-on-one debate. Let's do it. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis challenged former President Donald Trump to a one-on-one debate after the former president did not show up to the second Republican Party primary debate on Wednesday night at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. DeSantis made the remarks during a post-debate interview on Fox News with host Sean Hannity after the two-hour event. I'll play for you now. Cut four. Take a listen. And you know what? Maybe we can say 
since the former president didn't come here, maybe he'd be willing to do one with, with you and I. I think he owes it to our voters to come and make the case. You're I now mean, challenging. So this is going to be Hannity one-on-one -on -one debates. Let's central. do it. Let's do it, right? <laughs> I'll do and, anything. So, I'll ask here, Here's the thing, though. You owe it to the voters to come and make the case. No one's entitled to anything. You know, you yeah. can say, oh, some poll months before. No. you got to make the case. you got to owe it to the voters. So I'm going to show up everywhere. I think that that's what we were able to do. And, um, you know, there were some, I think, some important issues that were, that were discussed tonight. There's also others that I know you and I've talked about that weren't discussed. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that was clear for this, there's a lot of talk. A lot of people had good things to say. I'm the guy that's done it. In you know, Florida, we did everything I promised. And honestly, I think this is a great idea. I think it's a great idea for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a good look for DeSantis. If he issues the challenge and Trump doesn't show up, well, that can look like Trump is afraid to debate DeSantis one-on-one. -on -one. And that basically says the quiet part out loud, or soon enough the pundits will, the commentators will, if there's no answer to the challenge or if the answer is, yeah, no, I don't have time for that. I'm very busy. I don't, yeah. The pundits will say Trump is afraid. Now, on the other hand, if DeSantis challenges Trump and Trump does show up to debate, it's also a good look for DeSantis because it basically sets him apart from the rest of the field, from the rest of the Republicans running. This is a lot better. This is a lot smarter of a move tactically and strategically for DeSantis than Chris Christie talking into the camera. I know you're watching Trump. I know you're watching and you're afraid. You know what's, you know what's better? Show, don't tell, right? Show that Trump is afraid of DeSantis. Don't tell people that. Don't tell him that. Show it by inviting him to debate you one-on-one -on -one in a civil manner for the American people to see and to decide. I think it's a great idea. If he does show up and DeSantis carries himself well, DeSantis has everything to win and nothing to lose, really, in terms of the nomination. If, on the other hand, speaking of Trump, if he shows up and he wins the debate— then he's just asserted dominance after a fashion, if you will, forgive the crude way of putting it. He's just asserted dominance over the guy who set himself apart and is up in the polls and has the strongest case, I would say, by a long shot of anybody who's in the Republican field. If Trump accepts the challenge and shows up to debate DeSantis and he wins the debate, well, then he is just crushed the whole rest of the field by extension in having defeated DeSantis. This is a good move. This is a smart move. And actually, too, if you put it all in perspective of Republicans really need to know what the difference would be, and they need to hear us discuss back and forth what would be the plan moving forward if I were elected or if he were elected, if he was nominated and then was elected and I was, on the other hand, nominated and elected. They need to know what kind of a choice they're making if they're going to make an informed choice here. When you put it in those terms, you make it about the people. What's the argument in the interest of the people who would be voting in these primaries and voting in the general election? How is this in their interest if Trump says no? Is he thinking of those voters or is he being proud? This is not a David and Goliath scenario. This is a David and Saul scenario as I see it. And DeSantis is right to say, I have 
done what I said I was going to do. There's a lot of people who say a lot of good things. I've actually done the things that I'm saying I want to do as president. That's a strong, strong case to make. And that's why he is still my top pick. He's still the guy I hope gets the Republican nomination and is president in 2024. Wrapping up, though, let's talk about one last Daily Wire report. This one from yesterday by Hank Berrien. Vast majority of Iowa, New Hampshire GOP voters open to someone other than Trump, CBS poll. In the crucial early states of Iowa and New Hampshire, a new survey found that while former President Trump holds a solid lead in both states among Republican voters, a vast majority of those voters are not committed to supporting him. In Iowa, where the presidential caucuses start the primary process, a new CBS News YouGov survey conducted between September 15th to 24 found only 20% of voters saying that they were committed to voting for Trump, while 48% are considering both Trump and other candidates, and 31% declared they will not vote for Trump. Though a majority of respondents said they were potentially open to a candidate other than Trump, the poll also found that the former president currently holds a solid lead in the state, 51%. The poll found that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 21%, is running second, while former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, 8%, is running third. In New Hampshire, 23% of voters said that they are committed to Trump, while 43% are considering both Trump and other candidates, and 31% declared they will not vote for Trump. As in Iowa, Trump leads the race 50%, while DeSantis, 13%, is running second, and Haley, 11%, is running third. The poll also found 62% of Republicans in Iowa and 53% of GOP voters in New Hampshire said the GOP presidential debates were a major factor in their decision as to which candidate to back. And on this point, that would seem to indicate that the decision to skip these debates has not been paying off, is not paying off for Trump. Now, that said, there could be a whole lot of showmanship, a whole lot of drama that he's trying to build for when he does show up. He wants it to be not one, but two debates that he was not at, where you look at how many people actually tuned in and watched the debates. And then when he does show up, see how many people tune in and watch the debates. I guarantee you it's going to be a bigger number. He wants to be able to cite that number. He does. No two ways about it. And for that matter, the suspense of all these comments about Trump when he's not there, if that all builds up to a moment where he does show up, that will be, even for those who did tune in, very compelling, and all eyes will be on Trump. He has the momentum. He has a strong lead ahead of the rest of the field. And at this point, it seems he's still of the mindset that I don't need to. I don't need to, and you can't make me. I don't need to. Why? You know, it's like when a football team is way up on the scoreboard and it's the fourth quarter. Why wouldn't you just run out the clock? You don't need to score any more points. And there's some slim possibility that the other team, if you let them, would run some audacious plays and maybe tie it up and then win in overtime. If you can just run out the clock when you're way up, why wouldn't you? Now, if you start losing your advantage, if he loses a few of these primaries, actually, by surprise, he'll show up. If he thinks he might do better in the general, if he waits to show up to the primary debates until the field has thinned a bit, he'll show up. But honestly, 
going back to the challenge from DeSantis, odds are high DeSantis is going to be in the primary for longer than anybody else except for Trump. This will probably come down to Vivek, DeSantis, Pence, and Trump. And that, even just seeing Trump and Pence on the debate stage, that will be interesting. I don't see Chris Christie dropping out anytime soon. He'll probably stick with it. But if it ends up being the case that as other people drop out, DeSantis's numbers look better and better, well, I think we'll get one way or the other. Whether it's the general primary debate or it's a one-on-one debate, I think we will get Trump showing up to debate after all. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. If you want to watch the debate for yourself, I would encourage you to head on over to foxnews.com. You can watch the full debate on their website. That's what I did this morning. I didn't catch it last night because I was helping with youth group leading discussion for middle schoolers on how to bear with one another. What does the Bible say about bearing with one another? Passages in Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans drive the point home that we should bear with one another in humility, gentleness, patience, because God has called us. He has forgiven us. He's shown a great deal of kindness to us. And our goal should be to edify and build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, not tear them down. That's what I was doing last night. Instead of watching these Republican candidates, too many of them tearing each other down, (laughs) a few of them refrained from that and they focused on building up the American people and what they would do to build up the American people based on what they have done in the past, what they think would be best to do that. Those folks, the ones who are more focused on building up the American people than on tearing each other down as they scrap to get the nomination, those are the people I want to see in positions of authority. Those are the kinds of people we need to have in positions of authority. But again, as I say, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.